as a veteran of dozens of Aeroflot domestic flights in the early 1990s, I know a thing or two about rubber chicken. But lately, the dreaded bouncing birds have been turning up on the menus of some quite respectable airlines, even for breakfast. When the alternative is a turkey meat sausage, it's clear the agenda is to serve up food only the hungriest passengers can steal themselves to eat. One well-known airline announced recently it was setting up a congress of no less than 12 celebrity chefs to advise them on their menus. A congress of chefs like no one knows what too many cooks are famous for. Hello, this is Robert Pym. Thank you very much for downloading this edition of Writing, Books and Stories. Today we're going to be looking at the second of three podcasts about writing the perfect article or blog. You may already have heard my previous podcast, Writing the Perfect Article or Blog. This is the second, and it's called Nutgraphs and Cosmic Kickers. Nutgraphs, Cosmic Kickers, and other obscure-sounding elements of traditional journalistic craftsmanship actually provide a great framework to improve your writing. If you want to read about this, along with all the links I'm going to be talking about, do have a look at the actual blog on which this is based. You can find a link in the notes to this podcast. Imagine you're a writer. You're panicking. You're looking at a blank page and sweating. How do you get started? If only there were a simple guide somewhere to writing articles for the internet, for newspapers, or for magazines. Welcome. I'll tell you how. The essential starting point for any article or blog is that you must have a clear central message. What are you trying to say? What's your point? Clarity on this makes everything that follows much easier. As I mentioned, this is the second in a series of three posts about writing the perfect piece. So start by listening to part one of this series, Writing the Perfect Article or Blog. It shows you how to decide on your message and make sure that what you're writing is relevant and will have an audience. Later in part three of this series, I'll give you some more examples with two published articles based on the model. Once you're clear on what you want to say, it's time to get started. And structure is everything. Many journalists use a simple template. There are lots of ways of doing this, but the following is based on advice from a US journalist friend of mine. It's worked really well for me in numerous feature articles during my time as a freelance journalist. At the end of this blog, there is a worked example. So what are the four key elements of the perfect article or blog? It should consist of the following, and I've set them out in the order in which they will appear in your article, but you may want to write them in a different order. I'll explain that. The first piece is the lead, that's spelled L-E-D-E, or intro. A colourful image or an anecdote 
to engage the reader's attention right at the beginning of the piece. This is the shop window to lure the reader in. You should make sure, ideally, that it's an instrumental lead, which, in addition to grabbing attention, illustrates your core message. This is going to be a fairly short part of your article, not more than 10 or 20%. The second element is the nut graph, and graph here is spelt G-R-A-F. One or maximum two paragraphs which set out your core central message following on from the lead. And again, this is going to be quite a short part of your article or blog, maybe 5 or 10%. This is followed by the third element, which is the main part of the article or body, setting out the points illustrating your core message. This could be interviews, facts and figures, argument. Finally, you have the kicker. This is a closing colourful image or anecdote. Ideally, it should be a cosmic kicker, i.e. which illustrates your core message and even, ideally, reflects the opening lead or intro, so perhaps continuing whatever colourful image you were setting out in that. That's it. You don't have to stick to this formula, but if you at least use it as a reference point, I guarantee you'll find it easier to write professional-looking pieces. One tip. If you're writing for a newspaper, don't worry too much about the title. Whatever title you choose, the sub-editors will change it. But you may find that giving your piece a working title early on will help you to write it. So how do you use this framework? How do you get started and how do you finish? My advice is to start your work before you do anything else by sketching out the nut graph. This makes sure that you know what your central message is. Don't worry too much about drafting it beautifully. You can change it later. The key point is to write down your central message. Once you're sure you have your central message, you should do your research. Any interviews, quotes, checking of facts and figures, hyperlinks, everything you need to illustrate your central message. While you're doing this, you may well come up with ideas for your lead or for your kicker. The lead is vital to get people to read your article. You may find it useful to try out a few ideas, write them down and see how they look. You should also, as I said, be thinking about your kicker. But the kicker, although it makes the article read well, isn't as important as the lead, the nut graph and the body. In particular, the sub-editors may simply cut out your kicker. Um, That's the kind of thing they do to make the article a bit shorter. Once you've done your research and sketched out your nut graph and lead, you can get cracking on the body using all the research and so on that you've been doing. If you've done things in this order, you may well find that by this point the writing flows pretty smoothly. When you've completed the article, read it through carefully for typos. If you have time, put it to one side for an hour or a day before reading it through again to make sure it makes sense. Then, publish or send it to your target website or newspaper. Congratulations, you're a writer. 
I'm now going to set out a worked example of how to use these various elements of an article. This is an article which appeared in the Financial Times weekend travel section on the 9th of July 2004. I must warn you it contains some bad language, but I'm blending it out, so uh, don't worry, you're not going to be too offended, I hope. You can find more examples using the same template if you look at the Journalism Index in my robertpim.com website. This article was published under the title of We'll All Soon Beg to Fly Business, and it's 950 words long. First, we have the lead, which goes as follows. It's 4am over the Indian Ocean. Should I say something? I don't like to cause a scene, but the platitudes are driving me insane. Fighting for peace is like ing for virginity, the passenger behind me roars. That's what we used to say. War is always causing suffering, the Norwegian teenager replies. He's standing in the gangway. His interlocutor, a German filled with drink, is in the seat behind mine. Fighting for peace is like ing for virginity, ha! Huh? That's it. I turn round and ask the German, in the most non-confrontational language I can muster, if he could possibly keep the noise down. What's wrong with you? The peacenik rages. Are you a policeman? Do you want an argument? Do you want me as an enemy? If so, you are making a dangerous mistake. The Norwegian returns to his seat. The German subsides, muttering. Silence falls, interrupted only by the ceaseless coughing of another passenger and the howling of a baby. So that's the end of the lead. And you can see I'm trying to illustrate my core thesis with a lively anecdote at the beginning of the article. So now we come on to the nut graph, which is actually setting out the core thesis. So the nut graph is as follows. There's a phony debate raging in the travel industry about business-only airlines for business travellers. Phony, because it's obvious to any economy-class passenger that the carrier's real goal is to force every one of us to choose business in the fond belief we're exercising our free will. So that's the end of the nut graph. It's very short. It's obviously a bit jokey, a bit sarcastic. And uh, that's what the whole article is about. Next, we move on to the body of the article. So here's, here's my jokey body about that thesis. Do you think that's paranoid? Here's the secret list, assembled at great personal cost to me by research in recent months, of how the airlines are plotting to make economy class so ghastly we'll soon all be begging to fly business. Number one, limitless alcohol. That German behind me boarded the plane as a bright-eyed, smiley fellow. The first time he raised his voice was when the stewardess suggested he'd had enough to drink. It is not good to drink too much alcohol when flying. She made as if to push her trolley, loaded with a colossal array of spirits, towards the next passenger. Just one more cognac, the German pleaded. The stewardess smiled and sloshed Martel into his glass. The airlines say they have responsible alcohol service policies. Right. Their policies are responsible, 
for turning coach-class cabins into hotbeds of alcohol-fuelled air rage. Number 2. Rubber Chicken As a veteran of dozens of Aeroflot domestic flights in the early 1990s, I know a thing or two about rubber chicken. But lately, the dreaded bouncing birds have been turning up on the menus of some quite respectable airlines, even for breakfast. When the alternative is a turkey meat sausage, it's clear the agenda is to serve up food only the hungriest passengers can steal themselves to eat. One well-known airline announced recently it was setting up a congress of no less than 12 celebrity chefs to advise them on their menus. A congress of chefs like no one knows what too many cooks are famous for. Number three, narrow seats. This will transform the most equable neighbour into an intrusive, sharp-elbowed oaf, and woe betide you if they're any more corpulent than an anorexic stick insect. On a recent 12-hour flight, I sat next to a man who was, shall we say, somewhat obese. Let's be fair, he was perfectly friendly and by no means so overweight as to stand out in a crowded pub. But his girth, combined with the pitifully narrow seats, meant that his generously proportioned forearms either had to be in the laps of adjacent passengers or raised above his head. In the latter position, which he somehow managed to maintain for hours at a time, his armpits were inches away from the nostrils of his neighbours. Wedged into his seat, he spent twelve hours fidgeting forwards and backwards and shifting from side to side, rocking an entire row with him. At 3am, tormented by discomfort, he rolled up his t-shirt to reveal a tight white beach ball of distended flesh. The pressure of the seat arms on his midriff affected his respiration. Every breath was a laboured wheeze like a dying cowboy. Every few minutes, a wet cough, inadequately harvested, spattered me with spittle at point-blank range. This happened, except when he fell asleep and began to snore. The fact that none of this was his fault didn't help me enjoy my journey. Lousy in-flight movies number four. It's tough sitting still for 12 hours. Boredom can make anyone fractious, especially children. That's why in-flight entertainment programmes include hundreds of movies of no possible interest to anyone, least of all children. That's why airlines leave movies running with the sound off during key plot revelations while the pilot makes a three-language announcement about weather conditions, the distribution of landing cards and the location of transit desks in airports at which we're not arriving for hours. On one recent flight, they cut the feature off halfway through and closed the system down for four hours during the night. They then left the curtain to business class tantalisingly open so that tormented economy class passengers could see their pampered counterparts in the forward lounge toying with their beautiful personal screens. The airlines calculate that none of these measures individually will leave them vulnerable to legal action or refund claims. But taken together, their impact is powerful. Once passengers have been plied with alcohol, stuffed with stodge, pummeled by their neighbours and bored literally to tears, the cost of an upgrade will start to seem a small price to pay. 
So that's the end of the body, that's the main part of the article. And then we conclude the article with the cosmic kicker. You'll see that this tries to refer back to the beginning of the article and again to illustrate the main theme of the piece. Here we go. There's been a blissful silence from the row behind me for ten minutes now. I can feel myself nodding off. I'm so sorry. A hand on my shoulder shaking me. I didn't mean to disturb you. The Norwegian boy kept asking questions. It's the German passenger full of remorse. I tell him it's okay. I just want to rest. Silence falls. Sleep is on its way. Suddenly the hand is on my shoulder again. I'm really, really sorry. So that's the end of the article. That's the end of the cosmic kicker and the whole thing. So that's my piece on nut graphs and cosmic kickers. Do have a look at the um, companion pieces, which are uh, the previous podcast about uh, writing the perfect article or blog. And there's a part three, which is more illustrated examples of how to use this technique. If you want to see how I apply these rules in my fiction or in my writing, do have a look at robertpim.com, which includes a lot of different articles I wrote for the Financial Times, uh, for the Boston Globe, for the Die Welt, and for various other newspapers. Thanks very much for joining us for this episode of Writing, Books and Stories. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating or review to help other people find us. Spread the word. You can find much more about writing and writers at my website, robertpim.com, or follow me on Twitter, at Robert Pym. Thanks again for listening.